0: So, uh, with that being said, I'm going to welcome you to the the final week of our series called Knowing and Encountering God. Believe it or not, we've been here for 12 weeks, and if you're hopping in today, this this series has been all about exactly what the title says, Knowing and Encountering God. So in the weeks leading up to Easter, uh, each week we talked about who the God of the Bible is, and then in the weeks since Easter, we've talked about how an encounter with that God can change your life by looking at people in Scripture who had encounters with God that changed theirs. Today, we're going to end this series by looking at an encounter with God that King David had at the very end of his life. It's recorded for us in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 6 through 20. So let me read through that on the front end, and, uh, and we'll get into it. It says, Then the leaders of the households, the leaders of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of the thousands and of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. For the service of God's house, they gave 185 tons of gold and 10,000 gold coins, 375 tons of silver, 675 tons of bronze, and 4,000 tons of iron. Whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the Lord's house under the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because of their leader's willingness to give, for they had given to the Lord with a whole heart. King David also rejoiced greatly. Then David praised the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. David said, May you be praised, Lord God, of our Father Israel, from eternity to eternity. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty for everything in the heavens and on earth belongs to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom, and you are exalted as head over all. Riches and honor come from you, and you are the ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand, and it is in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and who are my people, that we should be able to give as generously as this? For everything comes from you, and we've given you only what comes from your own hand. For we live before you as foreigners and temporary residents in your presence, as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Yahweh, our God, All this wealth that we've provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand. Everything belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and that you are pleased with what is right. I've willingly given all these things with an upright heart, and now I've seen your people who are present here giving joyfully and willingly to you. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our ancestors, keep this desire forever in the thoughts of the hearts of your people and confirm their hearts toward you. Give my son Solomon a whole heart to keep and to carry out all your commands, your decrees, and your statutes, and to build the temple for which I have made provision. Then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. So the whole assembly praised the Lord God of their ancestors. They bowed down and paid homage to the Lord and the king. This is God's word. In the fall of 2019... We did a series out of 1 Thessalonians called Unfinished, and at the very beginning of that series, I offered you a thought experiment. I asked you to imagine a stunt pilot taking off from the runway and getting into their routine and doing all these amazing uh, stunts, barrel rolls, backflips, what have you, that kind of, you know, excite the crowd and capture their attention and all that, and then imagine... That at the end of the routine, when the pilots bring it in for a landing, they nosedive into the runway, the plane is destroyed, and the pilot barely escapes with his life. When people drive home that day from the air show, uh, no one is going to be talking about the routine. Everyone is going to be talking about the crash, and there's one reason for that. We all universally know this to be true. It's that getting off to a great start really doesn't mean anything if you can't finish well. And I think that's true in literally all aspects of life. The reason I bring that up is because that's exactly what I see in the text that we're looking at today. If, if you've been a part of this series, then for the last several weeks, you have literally you've seen stories in, in the Bible of how an encounter with God can change you in all of these you know, amazing ways. We've talked about in just the last about half dozen weeks how an encounter with God can heal you from the pain of a dysfunctional childhood Uh, how it can fill your life with purpose, even when you feel like your best years are behind you, Um, how it can help you avoid being crushed by the weight of other people's expectations that they try to saddle you with. We've talked about how an encounter with God can help you get through the darkest times of life, and even last week, how it can sort of break through your self-centeredness and give you a heart for other people. But today, to conclude this series, what we're going to talk about is how an encounter with God can help you finish your life well. Because that's exactly what King David does here. So what I'd like to do is look at this story and talk about what it shows us about what it means to finish well, uh, what it costs to finish well, uh, and then where you and I can get the strength to finish well. And, and to do that, we're, we're going to break this story up into basically three parts. I, I want to look at, first off, David's goal, then how he achieved it, and then how we can as well. So with that, let's let's hop right into this story. First and foremost, let's talk about David's goal. When you survey all that uh, Scripture has to say about David, uh, one of the things that stands out about his life is that he had this this basically unparalleled passion for God. matter of fact, God himself identifies David as a man after his own heart. As far as I'm concerned, there is no higher form of praise than that, to have God say that about you. And when you look at, at the way that the author of 1 Chronicles lays David's life out, uh, what's clear is that the, the, the purpose and the passion of David's life is that his same passion for God would become a part of the lifeblood of his people, that the whole nation of Israel would become as passionate about God as David himself was. And you see this in, in, in um, two big ideas that David had during his kingship. If you read through First Chronicles, you'll find that, that one of the first things that David did when he um, ascended to the throne of Israel, one of the first things he did was bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, which was the center and, and really the capital of uh, of God's people, Israel. Uh, it had been the Ark had been lost many years before David uh, in battle, and it had all during Saul's reign, the Saul, the, the the king that that uh, reigned before David. The ark was kind of staying in this remote, obscure place on the, um, on the border of Israel and the land of the Philistines. And so David's first act as king was, let me go ahead and bring that ark back to the center of God's people, hoping that it would ignite a revival. David's thought was was basically, maybe if I can bring the ark back to the center of God's people, then maybe God himself will stay at the center of God's people. And, and it didn't work because, out, you know, external... Modifications very rarely bring internal transformation. And so bringing the art back never, never brought the revival that, that David hoped um, it would bring. And so David's second big idea after that didn't work, and this is really the last big idea of his life, uh, was to build the temple, which is what you're seeing in, in these verses. Uh, first off, it's important to understand exactly what the temple was because the temple w- was not only th- the center of spiritual life for God's people. It was where the law was taught. It was where, the, uh, you know, God's people could worship and sacrifices could be made and all that. But, but even on top of that, uh, th- the temple was really the institution through which um, the poor and the marginalized and the vulnerable would be cared for, for God's people. It was the money of the temple that would uh, work towards providing a safety net for basically for people that, that otherwise had nobody and nothing to take care of them. And so, Building this temple wasn't just a means of recentering God's people on God Himself. It was also a means of extending the love of God toward countless people. So even having the idea of, of building this was a, is a tremendous vision for David. And anybody who's had a vision to do anything knows that having a vision about something is one thing, actually seeing that vision brought to life is another thing entirely. And what makes this account that we're reading here at the very end of David's life, I mean, just verses after this, David dies. What makes this account so remarkable uh, is that here at the end of David's life, his vision becomes a reality. Because the very first thing you read here on the front end is that all of the the, uh, community leaders in Israel respond to David's vision. Um, Verse 6 tells that the leaders give willingly to this project, and their generosity is you know, mind boggling. It, it says, I, I read it to you on the front end, but I'll, I'll point it out again here. All of the leaders in Israel pooled all of their resources, and it says they put forward 185 tons of gold, 10,000 gold coins, 375 tons of silver, 675 tons of bronze, and 4,000 tons of, of iron. So, what's happening here is that the leaders of Israel are devoting a massive part of their economy to ministry. Now, there's lots of other things that they could have done with this kind of wealth that any other nation in the ancient Near East would have done. This money could have been used, first and foremost, obviously, for just, you know, helping them live out their days in, in, in comfort and luxury and all that kind of stuff. But beyond that, for a nation in the Near East when, you know, it's not like anybody had diplomatic ties with one another back then, this is money that you could have, you know, used to invest in agriculture uh, in case of a famine. This is money that you could have used to um, you know, fortify your cities or even hire an army and they've meant that, you know, you were, you were under attack. There's lots of things that you could use that money for, but what's happening here is all of the community leaders are, are basically, they're saying a relationship with God is far more important than any of that. So they're sacrificing their national economy for ministry and in response to that, we're told that everyone in Israel gave. So so the leaders practiced this kind of radical generosity, and in response to that, everyone in Israel that had anything of value winds up throwing what they had at this project. And verse 9 tells us why. Verse 9 tells us that that their hearts were changed. And so I'm saying that to say what I want to draw your attention to is that, that here David is, he's at the end of his life, and this passion that he had carried with him all his life to see his people you know, catch fire and prioritize God, it finally begins to materialize here at the end. Now, in saying that, I'm not unaware of the fact that nobody here has a passion exactly like David's. I'm I'm sure that nobody here uh, has this burning desire to build a temple in your your neighborhood. But one of the things that every single person who listens to this teaching has in common is that deep-seated in the human heart is a need for us to do something meaningful with the time that we've been given. That's a desire that has been put there by God. It's a part of what it means to be made in his image. We didn't decide to have that desire, but it is, a, it is a real felt need in every human heart. might look differently in every one of our lives, but every one of us needs to know at some deep fundamental level that we are doing something valuable with the breaths that we've been given that we call our lives. Henry David uh, Thoreau, or Thoreau, I don't know how to pronounce it, but he's an American poet. He has this famous quote. You've you've maybe heard this before. He said, most men live lives of quiet desperation, and they go to their grave with their song still in them. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but what he's talking about is, is this deep fundamental need that we all have to do something that matters with our lives, and in, in, in that quote, he's saying most people deal with this kind of ongoing dissatisfaction and this existential angst because we don't feel like we have that knowledge that what we're doing is meaningful. I'm saying that to say David was able to do that here. David was able to escape this life of desperation. David, uh, uh, he sees the hearts of his people turn toward God to the point that they're sacrificing their economy for the sake of ministry. He's seeing them finally put God in the center of the lifeblood, the DNA of Israel. In other words, David here at the end of his life gets to go to the grave with a smile. And I think one thing that unites all of us, regardless of where we're coming from this morning, is we love to finish like that. We love to finish our lives on that note. So the question that raises for me is simply, how did David accomplish that? And what can we learn from it? And the answer is found in the speech that David gave right before the verses that we looked at today. We picked up in verse 6, but verse 6, when all these community leaders start to kind of catch fire and give and their hearts are changed, all of that is in response to a speech David gave in the first five verses of chapter 29. Let me read it to you. David stands up, this man, you know, full of years. He's near the end of his life. Here's what it says. Then King David said to all the assembly... My son Solomon, God has chosen him alone, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because the temple will not be for man but for the Lord God. And so to the best of my ability, I've made provision for the house of my God. Gold for the gold articles, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and wood for the wood, as well as onyx, stones for mounting, antimony, stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones, and a great quantity of marble." Verse 3 is what I'd like to draw your attention to. He says, Moreover, because of my delight in the house of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the house of my God over and above all that I've provided for the holy house. 100 tons of gold, and 250 tons of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings, the gold for the gold work, the silver for the silver, for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now, who will volunteer to consecrate himself to the Lord today? All right, let me summarize that. David is saying two things here. The first makes a ton of sense. The second makes absolutely no sense at all, at least not in this day and age. The first thing David says here in verse 2 is, as the king of Israel, he's saying, I'm going to dedicate this nation's money to this project which of course David did that. He's the one who wants the project built. He's in a position to divert the nation's money to getting it off the ground. So any king in David's position would do that. It's what he says after that, that so moved the hearts of his people. Because in verse three, on the tail end of that, he follows that by saying, but I'm not just devoting the money of this nation. He says, I'm gonna empty my treasury as well. That's all the money, that's all the personal wealth that David had accumulated all throughout his kingship. What David is saying here is he's not just giving a portion of his treasury. He's saying he's emptying it out entirely for the sake of this vision. Let me let me pause here. Back in the fall of 2015, I preached through... Uh, The New Testament letter Philippians. And whenever I preach through, I think we're going to do another New Testament letter this fall. It's been a little while since we've done one. But whenever I preach through a New Testament letter, there's always a certain anticipation that builds in me when I approach the end of it because uh, I'm always thinking, all right, whatever's at the end of this letter must have been important enough for the author uh, to, to save it for last so that it would echo in the minds of his readers. And if you know anything about the letter of Philippians, you know, Paul wrote it from a jail cell that he had no, he had no idea if he was going to live to see the outside of it. So when Paul writes Philippians, for all he knows, uh, it'll be the last thing he ever writes to anybody that he loves. So I'm kind of on the edge of my seat as we're approaching the end of the letter. And what Paul ends Philippians with uh, it just captured me. It, obviously, you can go home and read it today. But what he does is he thanks the Philippians for their generosity, That's that's how he ends the letter of Philippians, might be the last thing he ever writes in any letter ever. And and my thought was, if he's ending this letter thanking them for that, then whatever they gave, it must have been a really big deal. Now, the unfortunate part is if you just study Philippians, uh, you'll find that Paul thanks them for their generosity, but he never really highlights on what it is. Um, So I started, you know, kind of doing some research because I wanted to find out, well, what, what was... What about their giving left such an impact on Paul? And I found out that Paul elaborates on what kind of generosity the Philippians practiced in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. What he's doing in 2 Corinthians 8 is basically bragging about the generosity of the Philippians. Uh, It's it's in chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, and I'll, I'll summarize it for you. In those verses, Paul says, first off, that the Philippians gave despite their poverty. He says they gave beyond their ability and then he says that they begged Paul for the opportunity to give. So you, you look at that and you realize the Philippians, the, the way that they approach generosity is just kind of in a different dimension. Uh, however, it's what Paul says at the very end of those verses that has it, it struck me back in the fall of 2015 and it stayed with me all these years. Let me just pause here before I read it to you and, and, uh, and be real clear about something. I am not about to sucker punch you today, with a a sermon about why you should give money to this church. I promise you I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to cheapen this whole series by doing that. If you're here today for the first time, I promise you, this is not a pastor asking you to give money to this church. All right, so let me just, hopefully that disarms you so you can really lean into what I'm about to read to you. In verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, what so moved him about the kind of generosity that the Philippians demonstrated. Here's what he says. They exceeded our expectations. Here's how. They gave themselves, especially to the Lord and then to us. What so moved Paul about the Philippians that he's bragging about them to other New Testament churches isn't just that they gave their stuff, it's that they gave themselves. To be perfectly candid with you, it would seem it would feel very anticlimactic to me if, at the end of the letter of Philippians, Paul—all Paul is basically saying—is, "Hey, thanks, thanks for that money that you gave." But the point is, that's not what he's thanking them for. That might have been what—that might have been the kind of generosity that they practiced on the surface, but that's not the essence of the generosity uh, that they demonstrated. And I just want to be clear here: of course, financial generosity is important. Of course, the Bible talks a lot about it. However, there's a tendency to think. All I need to do is just cut a check. All I need to do is just put money on a plate or in a box or whatever it is, and then, you know, my duty has been fulfilled and I can kind of feel good about myself. And the point is, Paul's talking about something a whole lot deeper than that at the end of the letter known as, as Philippians. The thing that, that he's commending them for and he's bragging about them to other churches is that instead of just giving their stuff, they gave themselves. That's a kind of generosity that's born from this mindset that recognizes my life doesn't belong to me, and so I don't get to determine how it goes. I worship a Savior who gave himself, and therefore the only logical response to that is for me to give myself, to open up my whole life to the people that God's placed in my life. Now, The only reason that I'm I'm, I'm drawing all that out is because that's exactly the kind of generosity that David is modeling here. All right, so, so let me kind of look at this through, through two different lenses. On the one hand, the amount that David gives is staggering. I, I read this to you, but it says that he gave 100 tons of gold and 250 tons of refined silver. Uh, if you read that in a different version, it'll say that he gave 3,000 talents of gold and 7,000 talents of silver. It, that doesn't mean anything to us today, but, but keep this in mind. One talent according to the Bible, was the equivalent of of 10 years worth of wages for an ordinary laborer. David gave 10,000 of them. So biblical experts did a little bit of math here, crunched some numbers, and, and estimated the value of David's gift to be in the neighborhood of $5 billion. The point of that is that David did not give a portion of what was his. He emptied his personal treasuries. That's not just giving your stuff, that's David forfeiting the life that could have otherwise been his for the glory of God and the good of people around him. That's David saying, my life isn't about me, it's about everybody else, so I'm gonna lay my life down. So, so the, the, the mirror, the, just the size of this gift is pretty staggering, but it's the motivation behind it that, that, that moved the hearts of his people that day. And i, I want to read four verses from this prayer David prays afterwards that reveal the heart that David had that allowed him to live this sacrificially. Verse 11, he says, everything in the heavens and the earth belongs to you. Verse 12, riches and honor come from you. Verse 14, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? For everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your own hand. Verse 16, Yahweh our God, all this wealth that we've provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand. Everything belongs to you. Those words are are really meaningful to me when I consider that they're coming from David, because from a human set of eyes, David earned what he had. Right? A, a lot of kings throughout history, and, and even a lot of kings in David's day, did absolutely nothing to earn their kingship. They just inherited it because they happened to be born into the right family, but that's not David's story. But David didn't really have anything handed to him on a silver platter. You've got to remember, the, the, the person that says those words, that's the same David that had the courage to stand before Goliath when trained Israelite soldiers refused to do so. That's the same David that had the integrity to refuse to take Saul's life even when people encouraged him to do so. Th- this is the same shepherd boy that God pulled out of the pasture and put him in the palace who won over the hearts of his people by beating back the enemies of God's people. And so my point is, you put anybody else in David's life, and anybody from the outside looking in says, no, what what David had, David earned. David fought tooth and nail for everything that was in his treasury, and yet, according to his own prayer here, had you tried to tell David that, Had you tried to tell David that he earned the right to kind of run out the clock in peace and spend what he had on himself and put him at the center of his life after all these years of sacrifice, had you tried to convince David of that David would call you a fool. From his own words here, what's clear is that he saw everything that he had, his riches, his honor, everything in heaven on earth, his very life as belonging to God. And so he finishes the time that he had in this life by laying all of it down. So, so what's the lesson here? The, the lesson that David leaves us with at the end of 1 Chronicles 29, the end of the story of his life, is that the absolute best way to make sure that you finish your life well is, is by remembering that it doesn't belong to you. That's the whole legacy of King David's life. If you want to finish your life well, the way you do that is by remembering that your life does not belong to you. That's what the Philippians understood. That's what David understands here, and it's what Jesus drove home to everybody who claimed to follow him. Jesus basically encapsulated exactly what you're seeing in David's life here when he said, whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That, according to Jesus Christ himself, is the meaning of your and my life. It's why we've been put here. It's what we're designed to do. And all of the meaning and purpose and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment and all of it can only be found inside of a life like that. It'll never be found inside of a life in which we put ourselves at the center of our life. It can only be found, ironically, as we lay our lives down. So The question is then, how on earth do you do that? Because that's a whole lot easier said than done. And to answer that question, let me, let me try to zoom out from this story and give us basically the 30,000-foot view. When you zoom out from this story at the end of David's life, what it's about at its core is a king who changed the hearts of his people by his radical act of self-giving generosity. That's what happens here. And the the way that it changed the hearts of the nation of Israel is recorded for us in verse 9. It says, Then the people rejoiced because of their leader's willingness to give, for they had given to the Lord, this is a really interesting word, with a whole heart. The word used here, you may have heard this term before, if you literally translated it, the word used with a whole heart, it could be translated shalom hearted. Shalom is a Hebrew word you might be familiar with, but it's another one of those Hebrew words that is so, um, it's so all-encompassing and it's so vast, it has such a wealth of meaning that no one English word can capture it. So I, I wanna read to you the definition of the word shalom. It means complete, safe, peaceful, perfect, whole, full, and at peace. So in the English language, when we talk about a person being at peace, or or we talk about, you know, two nations being at peace with each other, we're not talking about the fact that they're best friends. We're not saying that there's anything good between them. We're just saying that there's nothing bad between them. They're not in an active state of conflict. When the Bible talks about shalom peace, it's talking about something far deeper than that. To have the peace that that this is talking about, that shalom, that's not just the absence of bad things in your life, that's the presence of everything that that the human heart has been looking for and failing to find in this world. Shalom refers to the utter fulfillment that can only come inside of a relationship with God. So the point is that, that what you're seeing in this story is that the people of God had their hearts so moved by the generosity of their king that they gave without being coerced without being manipulated, and without even being instructed. What happened was their, their hearts were so overflowing with this kind of shalom that it caused them to lay their entire lives down. So, so here's my point. On the surface, you can read this story and, and see that it's about you know, King David, the great king that changed the hearts of his people through his radical, self-giving generosity. If that's the only lens through which you look at this story, it might be inspiring at first, but it's not going to be very helpful, and pretty soon it'll be discouraging. Because anybody who looks inside their heart will find that it's not exactly overflowing. The human heart's just not overflowing with generosity. Since Genesis chapter 3, the primary source of our misery is that the human heart has this nagging tendency to put ourselves at the center of our own lives. And so, the way that you and I are are, are called to read this story, if it's going to be of any use to us and affect any real change in us, is it's inviting us to consider not what it would be like if we were like King David, but what it would be like if we had a king like King David. What this is inviting us to consider and and really to come to terms with is that you and I need a king like the king in this story. We need a king who doesn't see what he has as something to be used for his own advantage. We need a king uh, who's willing to lay his own life down. We need a king who is willing to make himself poor, to volunteer himself into poverty for us, that we need a king who's willing to do that if our hearts are ever going to be changed the way that the hearts of God's people were in this story. And you probably know where I'm going with this. If you've ever heard me preach before, the gospel says you have a king exactly like that in Jesus 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Now let me walk through this. The kind of riches that Jesus had, obviously, was infinitely greater than the kind of riches that David had in his treasury. Which means the cost that Jesus paid was infinitely greater than the cost that David paid in emptying out his treasury, which therefore means the generosity that Jesus has displayed for us is of, a, it's of an infinitely greater dimension than the kind of generosity that David displayed for the nation of Israel. And if all of that's true, then I'm just being logical here. If David's generosity was enough to change the hearts of his people, then the generosity of King Jesus should change your and my heart in an infinitely, infinitely greater way. And scripture says that's exactly what it does. When you come into contact with Jesus, when you understood what he had and what he gave up and what he laid down and what he forfeited for your and my sake so that we can find real wealth in him, and he did so not at the cost of his stuff but at his entire life, what it will inevitably do for anybody who actually understands the gospel is at least three things. It'll change the way you think. It will change the way that you live and it will change the way you view everything you have. And, and as I was putting this idea together, I I could not think of a story that illustrates this any better than the closing scene of a movie maybe you've seen before called Schindler's List. <clears throat> this is gonna get heavy, but I, I could not I couldn't think of a better illustration here. <clears throat> right before COVID hit, I, I think it was, I actually think it was February of 2020, COVID hit in March. I gave a teaching on generosity, and somebody from the church reached out to me, Um, and they were talking to me about this scene at the very end of the movie Schindler's List and how apparently something that I said reminded them of that, and uh, it was a moving conversation to me, and I could vaguely remember the details of it, and so I called them up this week, and I asked them if they remembered what the closing scene was like, and they did, and they sent it to me because I still haven't seen the movie myself, but I'll tell you, if all you watch is the final five minutes of Schindler's List, uh, in and of itself, that'll be enough to move you to tears. And what I, what I want to do is kind of bring that final five minutes to life the best I can. At the end of the movie, Liam Neeson's character, he's uh, named Oscar Schindler. He was a German industrialist who, along with his wife, liberated uh, over 1,000 Jewish men, women, and children from the death camps. And at the very end of this movie, he's brought out uh, in front of the crowd of people who he personally saved at great personal risk and cost to himself. And someone from this crowd comes forward to thank him for what he had done, and I want to read, uh, read exactly what happens because as they're thanking him, he's overcome, and it, but it's, it's really interesting, not with joy but with grief. And this is what he says. Referring to people in those death camps, he said, I could have gotten more out. I could have gotten more. I threw away so much money, you have no idea. And then the man he's speaking to says, Oscar, there are 1,100 people who are alive because of you. Look at them. But he can't bring himself to do it. He walks over to his car, and he says he could have sold that car and gotten 10 more people out with the money that he made from it. And then he takes this golden pen off of his jacket and he says, I could have gotten two more people out with the money that I would have made from this. And he collapses into tears and he keeps saying over and over, he says, I could have got one more person, I could have got one more person, I could have gotten one more person, and I didn't. And the reason I share that story with you is because what happened there is Oscar Schindler went through a life-altering experience that forever changed the way he viewed what he had. That after he'd been what he'd been through, he no longer looked at what he had the way that everybody else did. He looked at what he had through the lens of its potential to help others. And and I say that to say that, that Scripture promises that when you and I experience the truth of the gospel, when you and I meet the real king who forfeited all the riches that were his, so that we could find real wealth, the real wealth we've been looking for all of our lives in him, it'll do the same exact thing for us. It'll change the way that we think, it'll change the way that we live, and it'll change the way we view everything that we have. And what it happens when a person's heart has been pierced by grace, when they understand what Jesus has done for them, what it does is it develops in them a mindset and a heart set where we go through life for the rest of our life instead of looking for what we can gain, looking for what we can give so that we can extend the sacrifice that brought us into the kingdom of God. I'm going to call the worship team up, and we're going to close with this. Just one final observation here. It was remarkable to me when when I was done putting this teaching together, the final thing that I I considered about all of this is David never saw the fruit of the sacrifice he made. I mentioned this to you, but right after these verses we read today, uh, he never saw the temple. What he does in this story is he basically Uh, gives up the right to live this comfortable, easy life that he could have otherwise lived for the glory of God and the benefit of the people around him. But he dies right after that, meaning he never got to see even a single brick of the temple laid. And the point of that, that this story is meant to show us, is that if you and I decide to do what this story calls us to do, what the gospel beckons us to do, which is lay our lives down, refuse to put ourselves in the center of, of our lives, and instead lay our lives down for others, we will never see all that God does with that sacrifice. We'll never see all that God builds with that sacrifice. We'll never see all the lives that God touches with that sacrifice, but that's exactly the point. So the greatest act of faith that there is, the greatest act of trust that there is, is to take the one life that you have and the knowledge that you don't even know how long that life is going to last and say, God, I'm not going to do this for me. I'm not going to spend the one trip around the block I have on me because you didn't do that. And so because you laid your life down for me, I'm going to extend the love that you showed me by laying my life down for others. There is no greater act of faith than that, but there is no other way to finish well. That's it. And that's all. So I want to thank you for being a part of this series knowing and encountering God. I hope that something that's been said over the last 12 weeks meant something to you, helped you, encouraged you, challenged you, and hopefully brought you closer to God. But we're going to end this service today in this series today by doing something we haven't done in a while that's going to become a normal part of our rhythm moving forward, and that's celebrating communion. And so Sarah's going to play one final song, but I just want to make this note before you're invited to come up and grab the elements that when we take the bread and we take the juice, and we celebrate communion, what we're doing is using physical elements to remind ourselves of the generosity that Jesus demonstrated for us, that he did not just give us what he had, he gave us who he was. He gave us his life. He laid his life down for us because nothing less than that could have welcomed us into the kingdom of God. So we have one final song. I'm going to invite you now to stand. And during this song, you're welcome to go up to either one of these tables to grab the bread, to grab the juice. But take some time to reflect. Because in about two or three minutes, I'll come back up here, and we're going to take communion together as a church family, and then I'll send you on your way. Let's go ahead and take communion. We're going to take this together. But before we do that, i want to read you something I keep taped in the back of my Bible. <clears throat> The Lord's table, then, is not just a visual aid to remind us as though it were a memory-jogging tool. As we gather together around the table, we're being trained to eat at the big table in Jerusalem, and we're announcing to ourselves and to the satanic powers in the air around us what is really true. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die is a sham. But the alternative is not a refusal to eat, drink, or be merry that would be ingratitude. Instead, with the resurrected Jesus, we sing out, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for yesterday we were dead. Let's take the bread and the juice. Amen. Father God, thank you that your word says you love this so much, you gave. <clears throat> and your, uh, your act of generosity has changed the trajectory of our lives. It's created opportunities for us that would have never otherwise existed. We, we, we stand no chance unless you loved us enough to give. And Your son Jesus, though he was rich, he became poor so that we could find true riches in him, God. I would just ask that we would be a community of people that understand what Jesus has laid down for us, what he's made available to us, what we have in him. And in light of that, God, would you create in us a heart that is willing to do the exact opposite of what every instinct we have tells us to do, which is to give up our place in line and to lay our lives down the way that our Savior laid his life down for us, that in doing so, we might extend your love to a world that so desperately needs it. And in doing so, please give us the confidence to know that that's how you finish well. Thank you, Father. It's in the holy name of your son, Jesus, we ask these things, amen. Thank you so much for worshiping God with us today. I hope this series was helpful to you. I hope you have an amazing week and that you come back seven days from now to eat some food at the picnic. Have a great week.